Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. Happy New Year and Happy Election Year. This week, you will hear a discussion on the 2016 election with Walter Kern, Peter Hitchens, and Douglas Wilson. Enjoy. I'd like to give a very warm welcome to uh, uh, Walter Kern, Peter Hitchens, and Doug Wilson, who will be leading the conversation about 2016 and all that has happened and may happen. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, just make a few remarks, take a couple of minutes to sort of set the stage. We're, gonna, we're talking about 2016, the year the political pigs flew, uh, or might fly, or whatever you think it is they might do. So uh, we're, we want to talk about Brexit, we want to talk about the Trump phenomenon, we want to talk about anything else that's generally related that comes into our heads. So, does that sound fair? All right. So um, I'd, like to, I'd like to begin by sort of setting the stage. I think it's fair to say that everyone up here in this panel is, um, everyone here is uh, not a Clinton fan and not a Trump fan. I recently wrote that um, I would like to see Hillary lose in a fireball 100 yards across, and I'd like to see Trump lose in a fireball 50 yards across which makes me something of a partisan, I think. Yeah. <laughs> right? Not totally objective, not, not totally objective. Having said, so basically if there are, um, the, the fact that you can be never Trump, to use the hash, hashtag, does not mean that you have to, that you are necessarily blind to some of the forces that are driving it. I, th I think that, I, I want to say that the Brexit vote in England and the Trump phenomenon in the States are very different in a number of ways, but I think that they are driven by this, a similar surliness on the part of the populace who are tired of being manipulated, mocked, made fun of, etc. And they are similar also in how they are, how they are dismissed and not analyzed as... Um, and I'll just begin with one uh, general factoid and then open it up for either of you to, to uh, make some observations and comments, and then we can get into it. And if, if we cannot sustain it, then at some point we can take questions from you all. Um, in the month of August, if you compare the campaign rallies of Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump held 32 rallies in the month of August. Hillary Clinton held 11 rallies in the month of August. So 32 versus 11, which tells you something about energy levels. But there's something else that went on. If you add up the total attendance at those, at those rallies, the Trump rallies totaled 198,300 people, roughly. The Clinton rallies totaled 9,800 people total. Right? So 198,000 people plus, 9,800 people plus, in 32 rallies versus 11 rallies. And that tells you that there is something of a significant size 
And I've already indicated my disapproval of the spokesman for this thing. Um, but something of a significant size is occurring and ought not to be ignored, and I think will be ignored and or patronized at the peril of um, uh, the, the peril of the enlightened ruling elites who want to keep everything just so. So um, this is the year of the wrecking ball, and a lot of things are not turning out as some of the elites had planned it. So that's, that's me setting the stage. I would invite comments. Peter? Uh, I feel for you. Oh, by the way, can you, can, can you hear me all right? I don't, I don't want to get too close to the microphone, but likewise, I don't want to be too far away from it. Say if you can't hear now. It's no good coming to me afterwards, because by then I would have lost my voice. Okay, is that close enough? I, I don't want to be too boomy. Speak into it like an American. I can't do that. He's a gentleman. That, that's not necessarily true, but I still can't do it. Uh, but I think that the, the thing, the question which, which arises very much in, in almost all the Anglosphere countries, and indeed in all the countries which have pursued the path of mass suffer, universal suffrage democracy over the past 150 years, uh, is that democracy may be running out of legitimacy. Uh, it's been so abused uh, by those who have dominated it that many people can no longer take it seriously or believe in it, uh, or see it as necessarily the way in which they wish to select their future. And I have to say that if I were, and I, I know that in 1776 there was a general agreement we should stay out of uh, your internal affairs, but if I were a United States citizen, I would feel insulted by the choice which was being presented to me in November uh, as, as completely beneath contempt. And it, concentrates in my mind, and I think this is, this is fundamentally a gathering of people who, whose beliefs have, go way beyond politics. A troubling feeling that I've had for some time, which is that politics itself, modern politics itself, is a form of idolatry. Uh, that we have made a religion out of politics, that we have ascribed to government power and state power uh, things which ought to be ascribed elsewhere and that we are now reaping the reward of that mistake. I, I've always, since I first began to have these subversive thoughts, uh, been quick to point out that what my, what, I, what my real concern is, which is also the real concern of the founding fathers of this country and of the people which made my country what it still more or less is, is not democracy but liberty. Yes. And that the two are not synonymous and are sometimes hostile to each other and that democracy can be and often has been a threat to liberty and I think in the case we now face may well be. And whether anyone is prepared to think that fundamentally about the future or whether we even have time to do so, I don't know. Demo but I am genuinely Demo afraid of the outcome of the coming election here. And when I say afraid, I mean afraid. I, do, I, I, I tremble for the consequences whoever wins, domestically and internationally. And I think that we may need seriously to reconsider our attitudes towards a number of important things which we've taken for granted all our lives. 
democ democracy is three coyotes and a sheep deciding what to have for lunch. <laughs> so it, democracy is not, um, it, we, we've had a faith, I think you're exactly right, we've had a faith that for many years, somehow or other, it's all going to work out. Somehow or other, we're going to land on our feet. Somehow or other, uh, the people's wisdom will make it happen and then look at what we've, look at what we've got. Um, Walter. Well, first of all, having an Englishman in the room, uh, could you give me a Brexit primer? I mean, uh, why, whom, and uh, to what end, and where do you think it's going? Certainly. First of all, I never use the term, uh, which always sounds to me like a rather unpleasant uh, laxative. <laughs> breakfast cereal. Like weed a Brexit. <laughs> Something like that. If you need it, take it, but it's not for me. <laughs> In some ways, I'm still physically perfectly satisfactory. So let's not use that term, uh, partly because it's misleading. Uh, what we have in Britain now is a policy without a government uh, because we chose out of laziness, cowardice and stupidity to defy our own constitution by holding a referendum which is entirely out, outside our political traditions uh, and by proclaiming in advance that we would abide by its result even though uh, the majority of members of parliament in both houses, the judiciary, uh, the civil service, the foreign policy establishment, and the media establishment are overwhelmingly opposed uh, to the result of the referendum Sounds and promising. are determined to sabotage that result. Uh, what we should have done, and what I spent a long time wasting my time urging people to do, uh, was to destroy the British Conservative Party, the principal obstacle to conservatism in Britain, uh, and a disgraceful betrayal of, of anything remotely resembling uh, political, social, or moral conservatism for some time, and to replace it with a party which was determined to take Britain out of foreign domination and back to independence, and knew what it wanted to do with the independence which it then obtained, and was prepared to spend, if necessary, 10 years extricating itself from this swamp. What we actually have is, is, is none of those things. We have, a, as I say, a, a parliament, a government, an establishment absolutely and completely determined to, to frustrate this. Uh, a people powerless to enforce the results of their own vote, and a constitutional crisis guaranteed to last for several years. Uh, the end result of it will be that we will move from our current position, which is half in the European Union, uh, to a new position, which will be half out of it. <laughs> and if any of you is capable of telling the difference between the one and the other, do come and tell me how. For me, the whole thing is an expensive spirit and a waste of shame. I don't know why we bothered. Uh, I didn't vote in it. Uh, I was, I, I, it was infuriating to see, to see this cause supposedly triumphing in which I didn't believe because I knew that it, was, it would be an empty victory. Uh, and I hope that helps explain to you why it is we're in the mess that we're in. But to declare uh, that you are leaving uh, the European Union is much like climbing onto the high board and saying, I'm now going to dive in from the high board. Uh, the test comes when you actually do it. And we show no signs, whatever, of doing so. Uh, and I don't think we ever will. And it's, it's a lesson also, which, which we could have learned from you, that constitutions are important and that you don't defy or ignore or seek to circumvent them because it looks easy. 
so you would you, you would say the referendum is another exercise of your worries about democracy, direct democracy. Well, it's I look if you have a parliamentary system, I mean, what 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 when once the idea of universal suffrage and democracy took hold in a kind of frenzied madness in the late. 19th century, when politicians realized that you could actually bribe people with their own money, something which they really hadn't gotten on to. <laughs> <laughs> it was the basis of universal suffrage. Once this came about, everybody who knew anything about running countries thought, how can we think of ways to frustrate this from actually happening in reality? We can have it in appearance, but we don't have it in reality. And of course, parliaments were one way of doing this. In your own constitution, uh, the original Senate was not directly elected until, uh, was it 1915? 1917. 1917. And the reason for this was stated by the founding fathers who said they wanted to preserve uh, the, the upper house from the fury of democracy, which is also, of course, why Washington, D.C. is laid out so beautifully so that, uh, so that rampaging mobs can easily be machine gunned from strong points. <laughs> they never wanted it to be the sort of democracy people imagine that, that was the original idea. Liberty and democracy are not the same thing. And particularly when, when democracy means mass manipulation of, of uh, unlettered and politically ignorant people by demagogues, which of course you don't have here. <laughs> Walter? Well, I, where to begin? Um, tonight on Twitter, I uh, made an experimental tweet. Um, Henry Kissinger said of the Iraq-Iran war, it's too bad they can't both lose. Um, and I said, that might be said of this election, too. And what was the response? Well, how dare I try to rise above the choice, the, the, the binary choice that we have to make some sort of humorous philosophical statement, not to actively oppose and loathe Donald Trump is irresponsible, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of uh, a vote for a proto-fascist future. Um, you're either with Hillary or you're against her. You're not allowed to be, you know, sort of lukewarm in any fashion in this election. And that has caused a total breakdown of discourse. Because um, by framing this as the, the choice between, you know, ruin and proto-fascism or total corrupt, cronyistic, um, you know, establishment um, paralysis with Clinton, we don't understand what's going on. We can't talk honestly about it. I have never experienced an election in which you cannot speak seven words before you're in a fight. Um, and so I think there has been a huge lack on the part of journalists and uh, commentators of even-handed um, philosophical and sociological understanding of what's going on. You're not allowed to be either abstract or empathetic to the other side in this case um, uh, before you're you know, branded a witch in some fashion. But if we were to be, I would look at it this way. I see it a little differently. I see the frustration in this country as arising from a doubt as to whether democracy happens at all anymore. Um, you know, on the, on, uh, you know, as far as Hillary Clinton goes, 
here we've got a democratic party apparatus which we've uh, uh, um, um, revealed in these emails to be in the tank for one candidate, to be um, you know unrepentantly uh, dismissive of the other Bernie Sanders, who actually had large rallies just like Trump did, who you know outscored Hillary in terms of enthusiasm and attendance, you know, by a factor of ten to one. Um, and uh, there were points in the uh, primary campaign where the press was so dismissive, so um, uh, unable to give him a serious hearing that I, I think there was some question as to whether this, the fix was in. And I think Americans in general wonder whether the fix is in politically. They see uh, you know, two politicians, Bill and Hillary Clinton, becoming fabulously rich after leaving office, having created no product, added no value to the economy, purely trading on their ability to provide access or the uh, illusion of access uh, to some of the worst people in the world, to some of the worst fortunes in the world. And they really developed a kind of, you know, Anybody remembers Jim and Tammy Baker? You know, to me, Bill and Hillary are the Jim and Tammy Baker of politics. Um, you know, they you, you give them a lot of money and they'll they'll pray for you. Um, and and uh, uh, what do you want them to pray? Yeah, yeah. You know, and wherever you got that money whether it was enslaving children in, you know, Mongolia or whatever, they'll take it just fine. Um, they'll even take money for a Haitian earthquake, billions of dollars, given by people who are digging deep and have true feelings, and spend it on themselves. Uh, so, so when you look at the Clintons, you see a perversion of democracy. You see uh, favor peddling, uh, insider trading, a coziness with the most uh, sort of uh, uh, brutal elements of Wall Street and finance, and, and in the word that many use, you see a sort of globalist, elitist um, contract between elites, which seems to exclude the rest of us. You know, um, and so there's doubt as to whether the Clintons are anything but a new form of sort of establishment royalty. So the desire to see democracy act in uh, repudiation of that kind of thing is strong and I think legitimate. Um, you know, uh, going back to our founding, Americans were um, uh, suspicious of uh, the professional politicians. And, and they are the quintessential professional politicians. I don't know that Hillary has, you know, um, opened the car door for herself in 35 years. Um, so, so that pent-up uh, uh, desire to be heard, to have your predicament as an average American um, count for something, to have the basically pragmatic approach that most Americans have to politics reflected in our government, rather than this, you know, horrible kind of new politics, this identity politics in which, you know, the, everything's about um, 
these sins of isms and so on, and you know, groups are, are kept in perpetual uh, aggrieved, uh, uh, passionate uh, conflict with each other in order to manipulate them for electoral purposes. So, so on the other side, with, with Trump and the criticism of Trump, you know, here is a guy who I have it on good authority, having done a lot of reporting on it, is basically flying around on a plane by himself because his family doesn't like to be on the plane. They have very nice apartments. <laughs> Tweeting whatever comes into his mind and beholden to the last person he had a good conversation with. You know, the notion that Trump is somehow a stalking horse for some, you know, old-fashioned uh, reactionary um, politics as we saw in the 30s, I think is entirely wrong. You know, Donald Trump could come out tomorrow and make some, you know, huge discovery uh, about, uh, you know, universal daycare because his daughter recommended it. And, 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 and uh, you know, that could happen. But, but so, isn't, isn't the point about it, it doesn't matter what he says. Uh, he, he, he has created a monster which will support him whatever he says and does. They don't care what he says or what he does. They think and have decided that he is their spokesman. And that as a result, he, if, if, he, if, if he comes to office and fails them, this monster which has been created will not just slink away and say, oh, sorry, thank you very much for the opportunity. We're going to go back to normal. It will need something else to feed on instead. He, he actually ceases to matter. At, at some point, if, even, if, even if elected, because the, the movement which will have put him into office will want more than he is ever going to give it. Well, I'm on record and, if, and also more than anybody can ever give it, and that is, that, is, that, is the, that is the difficulty. I'm on record as saying that it's not Trump's uh, actions in office that frighten me. It's the disappointment of his followers when those promises he's made turn out to be entirely impossible. Um, but, but, you know, one other thing in the Trump column and, and, and the anti-Clinton column is this. Americans have been told for now, you know, 10 years that we've recovered from a recession. And yet at the same time, you read articles that, you know, 70% of Americans don't have $400 in the bank for an emergency. You read that the life expectancy of middle-aged white people is falling due to depression, drug abuse, prescription uh, pain pill abuse particularly, and suicide. Uh, this is a country which when you get outside of its glorious coastal and metropolitan precincts, is having a very hard time. And the Democrats aren't addressing that. In some fundamental way, between the isolated media and the isolated ruling class, they are failing to apprehend that there is a chronic sense of crisis and sort of um, uh, fatigue and uh, low expectations for the future. And, and they refuse to address that because we're to believe that we've made this mighty recovery and that the, you know, the success of Silicon Valley and a few other industries is somehow indicative of our general welfare. Um, so, so, you know, by, by addressing that, by going into rural Ohio or small town 
you know, Indiana or, or small city uh, uh, mid-America devastated by free trade and so on. You know, Trump is uh, talking about reality in a way the other candidate isn't. If, um, I think the sociologist Peter Berger once said that um, the most religious country in the world is India and the most secular country in the world is Sweden. And he said America is a nation of Indians governed by Swedes. Um, so the, establish, the establishment in the dark blue um, sections of our country, it's basically Europe without castles. And you've got a, a very, a one worldview. And then in the heartland or the flyover country, it's exactly right. People are uh, people are really, really hurting, and are and they they don't translate the hurt into um, traditional identity politics, begging for a handout. It translates into anger. Right? So it's um, sur like a surliness, and it's attached itself to Donald Trump. He could change tomorrow. He's he's back and forth, but the sentiment that's driving him can't change tomorrow. And I think if there's probably two or three things that would everybody knows him for. The wall, you know, building a wall with Mexico. Uh, if he says, oh, sorry, can't do that. Or, you know, if he does, if he reverses course on those, it's going to be a total meltdown mess. Um, and that, I agree with you, that that's where the mess is going to come from, the collision between Trump and his, his disappointed followers. Well, you know, Trump is actually, in many ways, a populist Democrat. I mean, he's an anti-free trader of, of the old school, before you know Bill Clinton and NAFTA. Um, he's a uh, he believes in sort of uh, protecting our labor market. That's really what this more than anything this anti-immigrant. I mean, besides the security uh, concerns, you know, letting in terrorists or prospective terrorists. You know, there's a sense, people are saying, I'm, I'm stagnating, my wages are stagnating, these good jobs have gone away, and so on. And um, there's a suggestion that somehow a, a tighter immigration policy might change that. Um, but, but at the same time, I think that the, the key and the thing that you misunderstand about Trump at your peril is that Americans feel that partisan politics has failed. He is a post-partisan candidate. Republicans don't like him, and a lot of Democrats don't like him. And a lot of people who used to consider themselves Democrats do like him, and a lot of people who don't identify as either like him. And, and, and so he is the man without a party, so to speak. And, and what we're seeing in this election is partylessness versus a very traditional, well-organized, uh, sort of cronyistic Democratic parties. Can I say so, something about yes. what has gone wrong with Western politics most fundamentally? Uh, which is, is actually often means that these debates are rather difficult to conduct because we turn and say that such and such a government, such and such a political party or politician are unsatisfactory, that we will not vote for them, that they, that they ruined this and that they ruined that. Uh, actually, the problem with the, the, the rich, free countries seems to me to have a lot to do with our own 
delusional state about the standard of living which we can expect to have under the circumstances in the world in which we live, uh, and our unwillingness to accept any responsibility for much of what's going on. Now, for instance, most of the real sentiment about leaving the European Union and Britain came from the fact that there has been in our country a gigantic, unprecedented level of immigration. And that gigantic, unprecedented level of immigration was justified by government and, and defended by government, and in my view, secretly encouraged by government, because uh, they wanted to have large amounts of cheap labor coming into the country. The truth is, if we have an expression, I can read the NEETS, N-W-E-T-S, not in employment, education, or training. And these are young people un under the age of 25. There are a million of those in Britain. They have no work to do. Many of them are living on welfare payments. And yet we imported a million people. And this leaves aside the approximately 180,000 British babies each year whom we kill in the womb uh, because we aren't prepared to bear those children. Uh, so we have this, we, we claim to have a shortage of labor. So we import, and most people are prepared to accept it, very large numbers of people. And these things are not wholly to do with government. They are to do with the acceptance by people in Western countries of circumstances which would have seemed completely unthinkable to their forebears, both, let's say, the mass killing of babies, the refusal to train an entire generation or educate it properly so it was capable of working in the low-paid jobs that young people used to do, and a general unwillingness to accept that in an increasingly straightened and overcrowded world, we might just have to live a little less luxuriously than we do. And we respond to this problem not by saying, actually, we need some kind of moral regeneration in our own society, which we plainly do, and not by saying that the state has become so fantastically strong because the family has become so fantastically weak, which is the case, but by turning to the false religion of politics and by making higher and higher demands upon political figures until, in the end, we create these ludicrous, deified monsters such as Donald Trump to try and satisfy our desire for something which is actually most fundamentally our responsibility to solve, which he can't possibly solve. And my suspicion is that as he sits alone in his aeroplane, he is increasingly frightened. He is increasingly frightened of the responsibility which he has invited onto his shoulders and doesn't have any idea how he's going to handle it. And can you imagine that? That you have as your chief magistrate sitting in the White House a frightened man who doesn't know what he's going to do. And, and, and you have as a country, just as we as in, in, in my country have done something similar, you have, you have created this by making politicians the receptacle of all the needs and desires which really actually belong in a free society, not to government, but to individuals. But, but by the same, but, but, but it's also true that government has um, mediated so many of our relationships uh, intruded in so uh, thorough a way into our lives that politics is now seen as the only route to certain kinds of change because the, because the institutions in which it would have occurred otherwise have become feeble and uh, in many cases um, their power has been usurped. But, but whose, fault, whose fault is that? But wouldn't this, wouldn't this election be the final reductio of that that the, the God that failed, the savior that failed. So for many years, when people appealed to politics as the savior, 
you could you could make a plausible prima facie argument for that. Well, they did they did help with this, and they you could point to things. But now in the this huge republic, 330 million people, we've narrowed it down to this. <laughs> you know, we, we you know we had all the you know Clinton, you know someone who's you know the Clinton machine is just evil, and um, the Trump machine is bad and not a machine not a machine um, it's a it's a broken machine right is, yeah. it, is it an organism though? when you when, but, but you know we're all we're, we're also living we're also living in a new gilded age i mean come on the fortunes and the uh the isolation the splendid isolation of those at the top you know the point zero one percent is almost unprecedented you know we have a uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is quickly going to be the sole storekeeper for the entire uh, United States. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is going to be the internet for all practical purposes. Um, you know, they are building walled worlds of splendor. At the same time, a Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, supposedly to the left of the other, is giving speeches for $600,000 a pop to an investment bank. That will cause a certain sort of legitimate desperation on the part of the people, and almost a political desperation when they go, hey, you know, I've got, uh, you know, a Democratic Party which used to pretend to speak for the working man, which now is the party of Goldman Sachs, and uh, and a Republican Party, strangely enough, which though it used to represent commercial and corporate uh, well-being, it was said. Um, is speaking to my alienated, isolated situation at the bottom of a hugely unequal society. Because I, I think everybody accepting a, a, a decrease in their standard of living is one thing. But people accepting it at the same time, they're seeing a disparity of such colossal proportions, where huge corporations don't pay taxes, and in which, in, in a fashion, Clinton, Democratic Party, guards them from having to. Um, they're, where's the exit? How do we get out of this well, these, situation? These are good populist points, and, and who, who can disagree with them on straightforward moral grounds? The, the, the levels of, of, of riches of these people are, are appalling and in, indefensible. But if they all stop being rich tomorrow, it wouldn't solve any of the problems that we face. That, that, it, it, it diverts attention from the fact that it is a, a mass problem problem of mass behavior, not created by those of few individuals. And if we apply it, I mean, I, I, I have to say I find Bernie Sanders quite an attractive candidate in a way, uh, simply because he's not the other two. But <laughs> if you, having gone beyond that and said, oh, nice to see an old guy doing well, uh, we, we have a very similar character in Britain called, called Jeremy Corbyn. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for him in the same way. But either of these gentlemen were given the authority to pursue his policies which predate Franklin Roosevelt's for uh, I don't think you'd find that they solved many of the problems of the country. Uh, they're, they're based on a, a very simple-minded, old-fashioned leftism, so which, 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 which would not actually uh, deal with the difficulty. It's, it's this, the way in which we have ceded our own moral responsibility for what we should do to a group of people wholly incapable of actually doing it so is, 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 is the mistake. Would, Why would, do we do this? Would we, I think we, have, we would have agreement up here, all three of us would say 
the politics as they are can't save us. The, the, the thing that ails us, the, the rot in Western culture, is not going to be addressed by the next person we elect, even if it was a good guy. Sometimes I think about this election and the choice. You know, people say the lesser of two evils. The problem is the evils are so different that I have a hard time running that calculus. Um, yeah. uh, you know, one is the evil of absolute consolidation of sort of the least globalist finance-based uh, power, and the other is, is you know, uh, a, a sort of populist wildfire that can turn in any direction and burn us all. Um, uh, but 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 I, I I really come to analyze it for myself as a voter this way: Which candidate would you like to see fail more? That was my question. I was going to ask each of us to respond because both are going to fail, and in a way, sometimes I think Clinton's failure would be more um, uh, bracing and reality returning than his. His would be the failure of a man. If Hillary Clinton fails, it will be the failure of a system. Do you, by fail, failing, do you mean failing to win the presidency or getting the presidency no, no. and who, crashing who, the whole who, thing? Who, 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 I, you know, I have a bad habit of reading the Daily Telegraph, a British paper. <laughs> and, a kind of, <laughs> and, and, and a very bearish, sort of gloomy, economics writer there, Ambrose Evan Pritchard. Uh, and, and I was reading just this afternoon about the coming credit crash in the third world and in China and so on. You know, we're, we're probably looking at uh, it by, you know, my reading and, and thinking, we're probably looking at a, a real economic uh, upheaval, a, a, a market correction of deep and troubling proportions, whoever is elected, uh, okay. after, after this basically free money policy that we've been pursuing for so long. So you're, you're in the 100-yard fireball with Hillary would, would be more satisfying? Well, in a way, in a way to, see, to, to see Trump succeed would, is one thing, but I, it would be almost as satisfying, I mean, to see Hillary fail. Because that will be, I think, a final reckoning with that sort of politics. Um, I, they'll be able to argue that everything would have been good if we just, uh, you know, voted for her. Um, and I think if we do, and then everything isn't good, we will truly start to do a radical analysis of our situation. Who, uh, Peter? Who worries you more? Uh, I think, I mean, in some ways, Hillary Clinton worries me more because of her enthusiasm for war. Yes. Um, what, I'm not wholly convinced that Donald Trump has any less enthusiasm for war, or the things that he said about foreign policy have been said for any other reason than effect, or that he wouldn't be captured by the same lobbies that have captured Mrs. Clinton. Uh, but that's one aspect of it. Uh, one of the reasons why it makes it impossible uh, to imagine voting for either of them. But the thing about Donald Trump is that it seems to me that a victory by Donald Trump, or, and this is, is nearly as bad, a defeat so narrow that his supporters believe he's been robbed, uh, could, I think, threaten the Constitution. 
And that's what I predict will happen if you're going to get into the betting. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Um, and and, I, and I, I entertain more conspiratorial uh, uh, thinking than a journalist of my supposed, um, you know, uh, credentials should ever do. Well, you might as well. Everybody else does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, leave, why, why stay behind? My, Michael, Michael Kinsley, the, the American, very witty American uh, columnist, said a gaffe in Washington is when somebody accidentally tells the truth. Um, and uh, I would say that now, in many cases, a conspiracy theory is when someone accidentally uh, discerns what's happening. Um, and, uh, or as a billionaire once told me, conspiracies, how else do you think things get done? Um, but they, they're generally politely called lunch. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but, but in any case, um, I, I think that there is a general uh, sense among Trump supporters that a certain degree of election fraud is uh, um, expected. Not just expected, possible, and um, has been historically uh, uh, used in certain close cases. And I think the technologies of, of elections now certainly allow for it. And and a, and a close loss for Trump will be interpreted as the, the success of fraudulent activity, and, and then we will... And what's a landslide for Trump? Winning. Um, no, no, it is. No, a landslide for Trump is winning, because to his supporters, there is a 4% uh, margin of fraud which one must surmount, meaning that winning represents a 5% victory. No, but that's not the question you're being asked. Oh, I don't think. What do you mean? What did you mean? Well, you're not saying statistically what would constitute no, no, a landslide. I think, I think yeah. what, he, what he means is what. Peter, you, you can check it up. I think what what I think you're asking is is what happens if if there is an outright and absolutely incontestable victory for Trump. Oh, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. And and you you described what a defeat is. Yeah. And kind of what the effect is of that. If it's a landslide. What does that say? If Trump wins, I hope it's by a landslide. Because, because then it will force the establishment of parties from the press to, you know, commerce and so on to deal with it. And th this is a point that was uh, made by Jim Garrity of National Review, and I think it's compelling, is if, if uh, Trump l wins, and it's, not, it's by more than a hair, if it's a decisive win, then Hillary is instantly going to become the most hated woman in America. It, because if she's repudiated, um, the people on the right already 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 detest her. The Bernie Sanders, all, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters already detest her, and then the machine was behind her because of success. This is the way. This is the way to power. This is the, and all of a sudden that's gone. And think of think of Hillary Clinton, who had name recognition, mountains of money, um, a well-oiled machine everything that a politician could ever possibly want, and she lost to Donald Trump, <laughs> right? How could, how could, Hillary, how could you lose to this clown car? You know, how could you do that? Um, and so she is going to, the, everybody who was supporting her before 
is going to wheel on her, and she's going to become. And it's not a scapegoat if you deserve it, because she. But she is going to be scapegoated. Put it in scare quotes. She'll be scapegoated by all the people who were supporting her, because you're the you're the reason. You were up against the worst candidate that the Republicans ever fielded, and you lost to him. And you had every advantage. Your husband is a former president. Um, you know, everything. Um, and the one. And and then you've got the stuff of li lying about our health, um, all the corruption, the email servers, all of that stuff is out on the table. Everybody can see it. Uh, everybody knows about it. It's an open secret. And then as soon as she loses by more than just a whisker, as soon as she loses, all of that's fair game to talk about. And you can bring it up and not get laughed out of the room. But I think there's a question whether, whether either side will, will, will recognize or accede to a close victory by the other. Um, you know, uh, the press has... has uh, I think gone about as far toward advocacy journalism as it's possible to go in this election. And um, will they suddenly start reporting on Trump as though he has a clean slate? Or will they continue in this sort of, you know, holy war against the proto-fascist Donald Trump? Um, yeah. If it's close, if it's not close, they can't cheat. If it's if it's close, then there's going to be recriminations in both ways, and and it's going to be a mess. Could, could I ask my American um, fellow members of the panel uh, what their answer is to this question? Can either of the two big political parties survive this election unchanged? And if they don't, what do, do you think might happen to them? Walter? Well, I mean, I, I covered the Republican convention for Harper's Magazine, and my um, essay or sort of dispatch is, is just has just come out, and uh, I urge you to read it, if only because if everyone in this room reads it, it will double the circulation of Harper's Magazine. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but, you know. The, the Harpers, Harpers will never get to hear the yeah. said that. The <laughs> One thing I love about Moscow, Idaho, is that I feel safer from the um, censure of my colleagues and being overheard by the smart set than I have for a while. Now. Um, sure. They say the internet goes everywhere, but I'm not so sure. Uh, uh, in, in any case, uh, the Republican convention was strange because Donald Trump was addressing a room full of delegates. Delegates, by definition, are activist Republican Party faithful, um, you know, volunteers in many cases. They had not voted for him, most of them. They had um, been bound by the, the, the uh, results of their state primaries to cast uh, you know, their votes as delegates, but they represented the party and not Donald Trump. And in a way, he was in enemy territory at his own convention. It was very, a very strange thing to watch. Um, now, so, so some would say the Republican Party, even though it's doing fairly well and is expected to do well in the down uh, ticket races now, um, 
is already over. It wasn't able to work its will. It had all these candidates from the highest echelons of its organized self and couldn't put any of them over. Now, on the Democratic side, um, there's a question as to whether there was a party other than Hillary Clinton and her organization. Um, whether in fact, and the Democratic Party is a much more organized party of patronage and, and, and you know, uh, sort of, you know, union labor and so on. I mean, the Republican Party is sort of a brand that they trot out every, you know, when there's elections. But, you know, the Democratic Party exists between elections. Um, and, and but, but there's some question on the part of Democrats whether what we have is what we have a party here or a Clinton promotion organization, which pretends to be one. And so I think there is a real question going forward as to what these things mean, why we should. I mean, like I said, if I were if I were a strong Democrat, I would be outraged by the fact that you know my my candidate seems to campaign chiefly in Martha's Vineyard. Um, uh, Beverly Hills and the Hamptons, um, and, and then every once in a while has, talks to the people. Um, so, so I, I think both parties, having in a way um, traduced their um, original uh, set of uh, constituents, uh, are going to have a hard time making a argument for themselves going forward. No, but, I, was, I was wondering, I mean, this is, a, this is the thing which, which, which made me ask the question, if there is a Trump presidency, whether you might then see large parts of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party combining against President Trump in the Congress? Yes. Yeah, it would be an alliance of convenience because the hardcore conservatives would be matching up with the left-wing Democrats to thwart various uh, proposals by Trump. But I think it's, it's very interesting because in, in our, um, the way our uh, Constitution is structured, America has to be a two-party system, not by rule, but by math. So um, in, the, in, in, in parliamentary systems, all the deals are cut after the election. So you, you have the election, and then splinter parties align with uh, other splinter parties, and they, and they cut all the deals after the election. In our system, all the deals are cut before the election, which causes parties to consolidate. Right? So Trump's a third-party candidate running under the rubric of a major party. Correct. And, and twice in our history, we, we started with the, the Federalists and the Republicans. It then went, then went to the Whigs and the Democrats, and then the Democrats and the Republicans. But it always has to shake out to two parties at the end of the mess. We've never had, we've had parties implode, so the Whigs imploded and then were replaced by the Republicans, that, that sort of thing. But we've never had two parties implode at the same time. And, and that's, I think, a very real possibility uh, in this situation. All the energy in the Democratic Party is uh, Bernie territory. I think it's lunatic thinking, but it's energy. And all the energy in the Republican Party, the intellectual energy, is on the right, in the conservative wing. And there's no real way to mix this up where it makes sense. And I believe that we're headed for the possibility 
of a major reshuffle where we come out with two completely different parties, some of it an amalgam of the middle of, uh, middle of both of them. Uh, I do believe that the Republicans have a better chance of, if the Republican Party survives, they have a number of governorships. They have a, it's very strong down below the, um, the national level. And if you look at the Republican uh, storefront here, they've got signs right across the street. They've got signs plastered in the window. There's not one Trump sign. There is now. There is now. Somebody, somebody spoke to them, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but there was not for a long time. Um, and so you have, um, I think the Republicans can survive. If, if, if they survive, I think that they could, all they have to do is make some rule changes, like no open primary, no open primaries, and no one who is on a Republican ballot can be... Um, can have a name beginning with T and ending with P. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, can't run. The, 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 real, the real threat is a third-party run, a spoiler run. If, so basically, if you, set, um, if you set the party rules up, they just have to make two or three rule changes that would keep Trump from happening again. Way more people voted against Trump in the primaries than voted for him. And it was because of doors left open with stupid rules. Um, and they just have to change the rules. I don't think the Democrats can fix their problems that, that way. I think the Democrats are have our head over trouble. Well, you know, in Britain, the left-wing party is called the Labour Party. No, if, no, that's not true. The left-wing party is the Conservative Party. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> it used to be called. Um, the Communist be, Party is yeah. called the Labour Party. If, if you think about it in this country, that that interest which we would traditionally call Labour is now probably aligned more with Trump than it is with the Democrats. I mean, those people who would either, who used to, you know, be salt of the earth are, 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 are the Trump supporters. You know, the other, this also goes to what Peter just said about making politics into, you know, an impossible um, uh, idol. I think a lot of them, it's really simple, Trump's appeal. If I talk to people who are supporting him, they don't understand why lawyers have to run this country. They don't understand why a country whose um, genius it seems to be commerce and business and the pragmatic solution of problems, uh, you know, getting a good product for the lowest price and so on, um, and marketing it successfully, should not at certain rare moments be run by an expert in just those things. And, and a non-politician has been a kind of uh, you know, ephemeral grail. It, even a, even a, a smoothie business person like uh, Romney couldn't win. I, I mean, we have had a, uh, a political class dominated by mm, lawyers and uh, operators and fixers that is almost immune to the kind of problem solving that we all do in our daily lives and which sustains our economy. I'd like to thank Peter and thank Walter. Very good. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast.